from KPFK in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, Massachusetts, WMBR in Cambridge, and BikeTalk.org worldwide. This is Bike Talk. Bike Talk. Hey, everybody. Hey, Taylor. Hey, Nick. Hey, Seamus. How are you guys? Good. That was a good episode last week. I thought so, too. I, I think the more we focus on, on the amount of traffic violence and how do we lower those numbers down to Vision Zero is, is really valuable. It's our mission here on Bike Talk. Yes, it is. I interviewed Dr. Lusk on her article in the Harvard Gazette about how dangerous biking is because of cars. Dr. Lusk has insights about protected bike lanes, the problem with bike infrastructure designed by men specifically, etc. So let's listen to that. Great. We are here today with Dr. Ann Lusk, who has been researching bike infrastructure and bike safety for over 40 years, half of which she did at her during her time at Harvard. Good morning, doctor. Good morning. Tell us a little bit about your research and how you started doing it and how you found yourself in this, what at some point must have been a niche area of research. I um, have been approached to be one of the core riders for the East Coast Greenway. That's a bicycle path similar to the Appalachian Trail that will go all the way from Maine to Florida. And my 13-year-old daughter went as part of the team, her 14-year-old friend. The team of nine riders was diverse. We were bored on many of the rail trails because the environment didn't change. And I decided if I could get my PhD, I could study how often there should be variety and a reward on a bicycle facility. So you'd know how long to get to the ice cream store, to the waterfall, even to the bathroom. And I applied and I got into the University of Michigan to do my PhD. Have you always been a bike rider? I have always been a bike rider. My first memorable experience, uh, we lived in Japan. My father was a chemical engineer. And in Nagoya, we used to take our bikes into the hills and ride in tiny velodromes. They really were the bomb craters left over from our having dropped bombs on Japan. Wow. And in hindsight, I realized we were dropping our bikes, avoiding the mud in the center, down into a hole that probably still had negative chemicals in the bomb shelter. And that's why there were no plants in this tiny velodrome. Wow. Let's get into your into this this article and and what you've found in your in your study. Cycling is very much a a part of my own uh, mental health regimen, if you will. It's become very central to my overall state of mind, right? Exercise and and sort of connecting to the community, to the infrastructure, to the area that I live in. But is it safe? It seems like it's definitely not safe. I have two kids. I would never let them ride their bikes to school. But I, you know, I'm out there riding pretty much every day. For a long time, we were taking our guidance. And, and I have son, I have a son-in-law. <laughs> I, I happen to like males, but it appears as if I don't like them. And that's because when after I had built the Stowe Recreation Path in Stowe, Vermont, and was joining the bike groups, I was getting a lot of resentment against my advocating for safer bicycle facilities. I was on a panel with John Forrester in Montreal at a conference, and he had all of his followers in the audience. And finally, when it was my turn to speak, they were booing and they were moving in their seats and they were showing great displeasure at the slides. Back then we had slide carousels that I was showing of children biking and seniors biking and women biking, because then the principle was that you were supposed to learn how to ride a bike in the road and operate your bicycle as a car. And as, as written in the article, the instruction was, everyone needs to take the classes from the certified League of American Bicyclists instructors to learn how to bike in the road. What year is this? Uh, 1981 is when I, started the Stowe Recreation Path, and I started going out on the road lecturing in about 85. 
So John Forrester's book had been out. Effective. The League of American Bicyclists was strong uh, with primarily male bicyclists. And they were the ones writing the design guidelines. Yeah. It's interesting because um, where we are right now, I mean, where I am in California, we're building infrastructure and we're and we're advocating for infrastructure um, and, and things like the Sixth Street Viaduct Bridge and other other bridges that have been built, um, you know, by Caltrans. These projects take so long to to be built that the thought around uh, safety, whether it's pedestrian, cycling, cyclist, or or anyone else, the thinking changes rather quickly. So you were talking about a book from right now from the seventies, Effective Cycling by John Forrester, and and the thinking is really almost immediately antiquated by the time you're already working on that in the early 80s, right? We're always behind while we're building infrastructure. We're always behind kind of what needs to be in place. The difficulty is if a trail is built and the Stowe Recreation Path was a trail, then we follow principles that are in parks and recreation. Mm -hmm. It's quite easy to build a safe bicycle path. The bicycle infrastructure that is on a road or beside a road comes through the American Association of State Highway and Transportation Officials guidelines. Those take forever to update. Mm -hmm. So in our study about protected bike lanes, we found that the engineers were using out-of-date and incorrect studies about sidewalks to say, never build a protected bike lane. They wanted to have the biking be in the road. At the time, the pedestrians wanted wide sidewalks. They didn't want the bikers on the sidewalks. And the bikers wanted wide roads. And the car advocates wanted wide roads because they could then double park. They could swerve. They could have that extra space. So the highway design engineering guidelines have been what have slowed us down in this country because the states couldn't get the federal funding if they were not going to follow those guidelines. Yeah. And we've gotten more flexibility. The difficulty is the term complete street and even the principles behind complete streets are incorrect because now many uh, smart growth awards are going to communities where they have parallel park cars, wide sidewalks, trees, cafe tables, and no bike provision except maybe a Shero, and they say it's a complete street. So the engineering guidelines that are coming from highway standards are still behind, even with NACTO. Definitely. I'd like you to, if you don't mind, to unpack the importance of primarily male cyclists, male dominance in, in the co- either the coalition, the building out or the planning of these um, projects, what the problem is with that, because there is a real problem. The guidelines are written by males. Mm -hmm. Um, If it's the bike guideline, I would say the people who probably volunteer to serve on those committees drafting those guidelines are males and they're bicyclists. Mm -hmm. And it's difficult to get inside the head of someone other than yourself. You just, you cannot perceive. So in the principle of crime prevention through environmental design, which is safety, you don't take a man out and have them walk in a back alley at night in a high crime neighborhood. You take an older woman and have her walk and ask her how she feels. So what we really need are design guidelines not written from the mental framework and, and history of a male, but written only by females. We've never done that. We have never had an all-female written bike design guideline. And I would say that the females, because you can't have children write bike guidelines, many seniors are retired, but the female perception would be more similar to seniors and children than the male perception for biking. I get that. This last year, I read this this book, Bicycle Race by Adonio Lugo, Dr. Adonio Lugo. Yeah, yeah. And it's it seems similar to me that like any group of people um, impacted by 
new infrastructure, in this case, bike infrastructure, really does need to be incorporated in the design and in the planning. Even building out these teams of people who, who are going to be planning major projects, like even the thinking in how we build those those teams has to change right now. We have to have a more modern way of thinking about how how we build that. Really going into what what you're saying right now, which is you have to come from a lived perspective. It can't just be um, hypothesis and and get and sort of guessing at, at what various communities need. I like your idea of a team. And fully agree. But if we put together a team, we would have one African-American, one Hispanic, one female, one senior, one male. And we would say, well, they're going to talk about bike facilities. I would say with climate change, we need a completely different team because any idea that group would propose would be about the bike. Then we would come up against parallel parked cars. We would come up with Uber and Lyft drop off issues. We would come up with bus rapid transit conflicts. We'd have the restaurant tables that people want to set where the cars used to park. We should have different people on that team who all have their own agenda, which is they want that curbside space. And we come up with a brand new criteria for the most appropriate use of that curbside space. And to me, it's the bike. Because that restaurant table is obesogenic. It makes money for the restaurant owner and it's fun, but fun could be had elsewhere, not to displace the bicyclists and not to put the bicyclists in danger of being killed. Bus rapid transit lanes by the curb. Great idea. You save four minutes on moving that bus more quickly on that street. But one bus rapid transit lane was built and created in front of the Harbor Chan School of Public Health where I worked. And the buses, understandably, are flying on that lane to make up for the time. So when you put a bicyclist, a child or a female or a senior in that bus rapid transit lane, they don't want to be there. And the parallel parked car advocates in Boston, they give out free parking permits to any resident who asks for them. One person owns 11 cars and parks the 11 cars on the side of the road for free. And they might have to move them for snow removals or for street cleaning, but they're taking the space, which then puts in jeopardy the bicyclist, and that's in jeopardy for their life. Wow. You are really coming at this from the perspective of bikes first. Is that correct? Bikes first for climate change. The people on the bus, and I happen to love buses, and that was the study that I did for five years at the University of Michigan on bus and bus stop designs related to perceptions of crime. But the person sitting on the bus from my public health 20 years, they're at one met. You and I are at one met. We're sitting. We're not burning any calories. If we're riding a bike, we're at eight mets or more. We're burning calories. So the health of us improves if we're riding a bike compared to if we're sitting in a bus or sitting in a car. What is MET? A MET met is a metabolic equivalent of task. It's similar to calorie burning. Got it. And the earlier study we had done on 18,414 nurses in the nurse's health study showed that slow walking, you gain weight. Risk walking, you control weight. Biking, you control weight. But all of those sidewalks in the complete streets in the Smart Growth Award communities where there are the sidewalk tables and the window shopping, if you look at the speed of those pedestrians, it's slow. Mm -hmm. They're gaining weight and the people in this country are overweight and many of them sadly died with COVID. Wow. Towards the end of this short article, this paragraph struck me, if you will, bad, bad, bad word choice. For the driver, it is usually deemed not their fault if they hit or even kill a bicyclist because there is a good chance the driver did not or could not see the bicyclist. Over the past two decades, motor vehicle design has looked to increase vehicle occupant safety while diminishing biker visibility. To protect vehicle occupants from crashes, The car now has wide pillars between the windows, a higher side beltline body, larger headrests, and a smaller back 
and smaller back windows, making it even harder for the driver to see the bicyclist. When when these tragedies happen, cyclists are killed, people are killed in, in crosswalks where it's not deemed the driver's fault. How how should we how should we change our thinking around that in, in our um legal system or how should we address that issue? First, we build protected bike lanes. We should understand that the car driver is, from an evolutionary standpoint, looking out for the other lions and tigers that will hurt that car driver. That's cars. They can even see the bicyclist and not acknowledge the bicyclist on their own radar. And that's human. And there are two studies done um, that showed that was it 68% of the bicyclists saw the car before the collision and 11% of the drivers saw the biker before the collision. They're just not seeing the bikers. Mm -hmm. So when you take a problem from the public health standpoint, you look at the, the upstream spigot. How do you improve the problem? You don't blame the person because that's blaming one person, that's blaming one driver. You improve the overall design. In this case, they were finding that many car occupants were dying in crashes. So their fix, which was terrific for car occupants, was to redesign the car. They didn't look at the up spigot problem upstream and realize that by making this car safer, they were making it less safe for the bicyclist. So it's our responsibility to also bring in the car parkers and the restaurant table owners and the bus rapid transit lane advocates and say, now we need to fix the problem for the safety of the bicyclist. And uh, going after one car driver won't do it. Changing the design of the car won't do it. And the cars now can stop quickly for a pedestrian in a sidewalk. They detect the pedestrian. Mm -hmm. And I say that that pedestrian is like a golden retriever, sweetly walking across the crosswalk, big and visible and slow. The bicyclists are like cats coming up on all sides of the car if they have to be vehicular bicyclists. That car can't detect the bicyclist. And the one study that I showed that was from London, where the females were killed at the intersections by the trucks, that's because the male bicyclists were going ahead in the intersection, ahead of the trucks, to get ahead of the mobile source air pollution and the traffic, get out ahead of everybody. Nobody was coming. They could go across in red. The females were waiting obediently for the light to turn green, and then they were proceeding straight, and the truck was killing them turning. So if we had bicycle signals, and my favorite bicycle signal is from China, where I also lectured in four different cities. It's a red and a green bicycle, but it's a red and green countdown in the middle. So that means that the car drivers can look over and say, okay, the bicyclists have this much countdown time. That's my time to go as a car. The bicyclists can look at their red countdown number and know 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, pedal up in your saddle. You're like a horse out of a gate when you get your green and you've got your numbers to cross. We have numbers for pedestrians to cross. We don't have numbers for bicyclists. Right. Do you still ride or where do you find joy in bike riding? <laughs> my joy, I have four grandchildren now. So the third chapter in my life is addressing climate change because I have four grandchildren. And I will be teaching at BU an urban agriculture course. And I'll teach another course on environment behavior, I hope, and climate change. I won't give up. My joy is going out on that Stowe Recreation Path, which I started on 1981 for a salary of $5,000 a year for two years. So I was volunteering to do it. It's won multiple awards and I'm out there with my grandchildren. I'm walking and they're biking. Mm. And that's my joy. Thank you so much for, for being here with us today, Dr. Musk. I look forward to going and riding on the East Coast on your bike path. Thank you. Thank you very much. So we just heard Dr. Ann Lusk on her article, Is Biking Safe? That was in the Harvard Gazette. And she compared drivers to wild animals. She said drivers watch out for other lions and tigers that are the cars. And pedestrians are like golden retrievers 
cyclists like cats and you know drivers can't detect bicyclists so i want to play a clip of a recent interview i did with the trek store manager scott mcpherson and he mm. talks a lot about being seen daytime running lights uh bio motion cool. some of this stuff may be obvious to some people and maybe not to others things like daytime running lights always is, it, on. is that proven to work i i, I wasn't yes. sort of aware of that oh absolutely clemson university uh did a traffic study and there was there's a few things that they found lights always on okay always on daytime running light but something to help visibility that's one bio motion bio motion is something where if if a human is driving their car and they are sipping their coffee, not even any distraction from a phone or whatever we know that they have, if they're distracted for a second out of their corner of their eye, if they see biomotion, they know that there's a human there. Instinctually, they know there's a human there. So something as simple as wearing yellow socks might make a difference that somebody is seen and never has an engagement with the car. That was a brief clip from an interview I did with uh, Scott McPherson, who's the manager of the new Trek store here in West Hollywood. Thanks for that interview. Um, it's important to talk about the responsibility that we have as cyclists to, you know, to be safe. Um, but I think that it, it's important that we drill down eventually on the built environment. That means that we have to have safer streets where it's safe anyway. It doesn't have to be like that. Right. It's too easy to, to blame the cyclist when the roads aren't safe to begin with. Totally. We are coming up on one year that the war in Ukraine has been going on. And Seamus, you have a couple of inter interviews with um, some people in Ukraine and Kiev and people that are helping with uh, with bikes there. Can you talk about that for a second? For sure. I, I interviewed a man named Michael Colville Anderson. Um, who is coordinating efforts to get bikes to Ukrainians, to people in Kiev. And then I also interviewed Devin McComas from the Boise Bicycle Project, who is getting bikes to refugees living in Boise. And that was, those were two really cool, profound interviews. Great. Let's hear those. Michael Colbert Anderson is an urban designer and urban mobility expert. He was the CEO of Copenhagenized Design Company, which he founded in 2009 in Copenhagen. And he works with cities and governments around the world in coaching them towards becoming more bicycle friendly. He is the host of the urbanism documentary television series, The Life-Size City. And he's now in Kiev donating 100 bikes with Bikes for Ukraine. Bikes for Ukraine is a Danish nonprofit which sends used bikes from Western Europe to Ukrainian cities where they are desperately needed in bombed out rural and urban areas in helping people get food, medicine and supplies, as well as transport to doctors and schools. Thank you for being with us this morning, Michael. My pleasure. Thanks very much. Where are you now? I'm at my hotel in Kiev, and I'm waiting for the latest shipment of bikes to arrive. This one will be from Berlin, where Berliners have donated 100 private bikes to us, and they'll arrive here, and we will distribute them on to, I think on this trip, five different cities. So my life is all logistics at the moment, waiting for trucks and loading trucks and unloading trucks. So it's not what I'm normally used to, but that's the game, man. Amazing. You've given a lot of thought to the role of bikes in livable cities, and now you're exporting bikes to Western Europe and Ukraine. How did you start doing this? And you mentioned the logistics. How is it going? Is it difficult? Are you finding it relatively smooth flowing to get bikes to folks? Well, first of all, it started in April last year where I was contacted by some urban planning colleagues in Ukrainian cities who were in the middle of the beginning of the war and the internal refugees and all of the different crises they're facing here. And they said, man, we need bikes like we need bikes for the refugees in the city of Lviv, which has been relatively safe. But they still were all of a sudden inundated with 200,000 extra citizens. They needed bikes for them to get around. And then we started to operate in the country. And so many other people have been contacting us ever since. We have appeals for thousands of bikes in dozens of cities where social workers, largely that's how we work. We donate the bikes to NGOs in our network and they give them to volunteers and social workers who then ride out to vulnerable citizens in bombed out areas who can't get into town because public transport has been bombed, ruined. The attacks on the energy infrastructure now, of course, make trams and trolley buses a little bit less reliable. So there's all these people who are stuck 
in various parts of various Ukrainian towns and cities, and they can't get into town to get medicine, food, water, humanitarian aid. So that's what these bikes do, man. They do what bicycles have always done in times of war, in times of disaster, man. This humble bicycle just rocks in and says, yeah, what do you need? And let's do it. So we have delivered 500 bikes now and we're continuing. This is not going to end anytime soon. It's all crowdfunding based. So we're trying to keep going. So all these bikes are in instant use. As soon as we hand them off to somebody, they're off riding, delivering medicine, food, whatever these people need. So the impact is immediate and powerful and poetic and beautiful as well. If you dig bikes, you're totally into this whole poetry, but the impact is absolutely amazing. So the second part of your question, yeah, it was tricky, man, at the beginning. I don't know anything about logistics, but we've had some big corporations like Carlsberg, the Danish beer, their Ukrainian office have donated trucks and we get bikes from the Danish police. We get bikes from regular citizens and we try to arrange these trips. I want to do it like every week, man, but it's a little bit more difficult than that. But 500 bikes, I tell everybody, man, we can show up with 100,000 bikes tomorrow, not even exaggerating, not even being romantic about the bicycle. 100,000 bikes, man, and they would be in use all over this country in a flash. It's so intuitive for the people here. Oh, a bike? Absolutely. I need it. Let's do it. You don't have to tell them what to use the bike for. They get it here. So that's really a lot of logistical challenges. I want to scale up. I want to do it faster and everything. But every time I'm here, it's really rewarding to see how grateful people are for these gifts from people in the West to know that we haven't forgotten them and to know that we're giving them something useful, right? That will literally transform lives on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Mikhail, you've spent your life kind of preparing for this moment. I mean, you've got a whole philosophy about how to transform cities. And now you say, here's kind of an opportunity because of this war. It hasn't been a bad thing <laughs> that I know about this stuff. Absolutely. You know, I've written the book about it, Copenhagenized, the definitive guide to global bicycle urbanism, the whole book about how to reestablish the bicycle as transport in cities for all of the different reasons to do so. So absolutely the war, it's absolutely horrible daily, of course, for the lives of Ukrainians, but the bicycle rules supreme. And I can see how the opportunity that I have here is to see how this really works in an instant. You can design bike lanes in Detroit or Paris or places that I've worked and there's a slow kind of uptake and people realize the value of them and cycling levels increase. Here, it's a completely different ballgame, but it's all same, same, but different. Bikes make a massive difference in so many different ways, providing help, like I said, but also public health. So in the long run, we're hoping this is kind of a Trojan horse moment where we just inundate the country with these cool donated bicycles. And I'm already starting to redesign cities because the talk is rebuilding cities here, of course. So I'm also involved on projects to design bike lanes for cities. So there are certain mayors in certain cities that are really understanding this point, right? So that's the next phase. I guess I'm kind of locked into this now, but the next phase is literally transforming the urban landscape with bicycle infrastructure, better parks, public space. The right mayors in the right cities understand that this is an opportunity for positive urban change. So I'll keep bringing bikes here, man. That's not going to end. But now we can sort of have the next wave of actually having safe infrastructure based on Danish best practice on the ground in Ukrainian cities. Can you talk about the term Copenhagenizing and how that message is being received in Ukraine? And basically your mission is to make other places like Copenhagen. How do bikes fit into Copenhagenizing a place like Kiev? I think having coined that phrase so many years ago now, what, 2007? Yeah, it was a way of describing what other cities could do. Other cities should not become Copenhagen. They should be themselves. But regarding bicycle infrastructure, yeah, it is the uniformity of the infrastructure. The Danish best practice has been established over a century. It's incredibly transferable, ready to copy paste in other cities, which I have done also in many other places. So here, yeah, it's a different context. I'm not focusing so much on Kiev. It's a big, bad city with lots of stupid infrastructure, motorways and everything. So we're focusing really on the cities that have been massively impacted, like Mikolaev in the south, bombed every day for like 200 days, Chernihiv in the north, which was invaded on the first day of the war. And they still have suburban neighborhoods that are just not even touched yet. There's no rebuilding going on whatsoever. So I'm focusing on the other cities where the need is much more real. And maybe at some point we'll get to Kiev. But my book, actually, Copenhagenized, only 150 new books have been published since the war started. And mine was one of them. So there's a Ukrainian version now, which is incredibly convenient and timely for the whole conversation about redesigning and rebuilding Ukrainian cities 
using this opportunity for, like I said, positive urban change. So man, I didn't walk into this as an urban designer. I just walked into this responding to an appeal from my colleagues. And can I get bikes? I don't know. I'll try and get bikes. Oh, I got some bikes. And now it's taken over my life over the last seven months, man. It's what I think about when I wake up and when I go to bed, right? What the next shipment? How am I going to get some more crowdfunding? How am I going to do this? It's a big puzzle, but I enjoy it. And knowing and seeing the positive impact every time I hand somebody 20 bikes and they just disperse and they're out delivering medicine to that old grandma in that village, man, it just, it makes you get out of bed the next day. It's a quicker, more positive experience than designing very important bicycle infrastructure in a Western city, right? You know that that's going to be good in the long run if you design it well, but here it's just like you got an eight seconds from giving them a bike to seeing the bike doing what the bicycle can do, right? So the poetry, the romanticism is absolutely there constantly, but then the practical application, seeing the proof of concept, man, it just never gets old. So the poetry and the practical use of bikes, you're seeing it. Are you riding there? No, not really. No, I do. When I go deliver bikes, I go for some rides with some people, but I live in a cool neighborhood in Kiev. Everything's walkable here. My wine bars are <laughs> walkable distance from here. So Kiev's not great for bikes. I don't ride bikes in cities with crappy infrastructure or no infrastructure. I don't want to flagellate myself. So I like walking in cities. So I do that, but we'll get there eventually, hopefully with Kiev. But really what I've seen in other parts of the world is if one city in one country does it, then the other cities in that country go, oh, wait, our neighbor just did it. It's not that Copenhagen place on the other side of the planet. And so once we have one city that really goes all in, we're going to see all these other mayors going, oh, wait, wow, this is amazing. So if that knock-on effect is something that I'm going to look forward to seeing once we start our work. And I'm starting work already designing bike lanes for the city of Nikolaev in the south. So that journey has begun as well. I have an article about this. What I always like to point out is that the bicycle man, it always has a massive impact in times of war and in disaster zones. We've seen it ever since the bike was invented. Old photos from Hiroshima, Sarajevo, the civil war there. You've seen it in Florida last year. There was a massive hurricane and the huge boats lying in the middle of a street and people just riding their bikes past. The bike can navigate any landscape, zipping around potholes or bomb craters. It doesn't require any maintenance really at all and can carry a whole bunch of stuff on it. I've seen some of our volunteers in the South, they got like 30 kilogram bags of potatoes on the back of an old Danish bike that was ridden by some student in Copenhagen and water jugs hanging off the handlebars, man. It's amazing to see how the simple bicycle, the humble bicycle can do so much good work. And I've been sitting here today, actually, we're going to try and get some funding. So I'm doing some applications and I've been doing some math about how the bikes that we've already delivered here, like about 500 bikes, they've done about 100,000 trips in eight cities. They've helped more than 300,000 people. They've carried an estimated 1 million kilograms of food, water, medicine, humanitarian aid, and they've traveled probably over 500,000 kilometers. That's just 500 bikes. Imagine That's what we're going to do with 20,000, 50,000 bikes. I have a few questions. God, I don't even know where to start. So I guess I want to ask, how do people help get you some bikes? Well, that's the tricky point. So we're sourcing bikes in Europe. So if a lot of your listeners are in North America, I have no idea about the logistics of getting bikes from North America. But on our website, bikes number four, bikes4ukraine.org, people can sponsor a bike shipment. They can raise money locally at a bike shop or an event, send us the money and we can put stickers on the bike saying that's from you, the Bicycle Association of wherever, Nebraska. And then just crowdfunding, man, just supporting us through our crowdfunding is something that we desperately need because the vibe is kind of fading in the West. Oh, there's still a war. We still look at the headlines, but the willingness to throw a lot of money at Ukraine through crowdfunding, all of the people I know who are doing projects like this in Ukraine are going, yeah, it's kind of drying up now. So if you're out there and you love bikes and you think cities should be bicycle friendly and you want to help Ukrainians, man, that's what we do. So send us your 10 bucks, your 50 bucks, your 100 bucks, whatever you got, man. It's all crowdfunding. So or like I said, the bigger version is we've had some bike association on the Sunshine Coast in British Columbia and Canada. They did an event and raised like 600 bucks sent it off to us. We put our how much, stickers on so, the bike. How much does $600 help? What does that get you? Well, 600 bucks, it helps us pay for shipping. It helps us pay for small vans that come from other cities to Kiev to pick up like 25, 30 bikes to go here and there. All the aspects of the logistics that we do. We say on the website under the sponsorship thing, if you can get like 4,000 bucks, American dollars or 4,000 euros, it's about the same. That pays for an entire truck that can drive from Denmark or another European capital. And that is the big chunk of what we need money for. We get some trucks for free, but not always. 
So if there's an event in Los Angeles that raises $4,000 for your effort, how many bikes Mm -hmm. does that get to Ukrainians? That will get 200 bikes. 200 bikes fit in a truck. I've learned so many new things. 200 bikes fit in a truck. (laughs) And that is 200 bikes that we can label as a gift from this association or the people of Los Angeles or whatever. So that $4,000 gets 200 bikes to 200 volunteers and social workers who will exponentially help all these other people. And I source the bikes at the moment, primarily from the Danish police. The number that has made me want to throw up every year for years is that we throw out 400,000 bikes a year in Denmark. We throw them out and we do it every year for like decades. What? Um, I know, right? And the police who end up with a lot of these bikes, I finally got the firewall broken down. So I'm talking to a lot of these districts in Denmark. Like Copenhagen alone, man, there's like 35,000 bikes a year that they just don't know what to do with. So I'm sourcing these bikes, but I'm now also ramping it up. The bikes that are coming here now are gifts from the people of Berlin, an organization called changingcities.org in Berlin. They put out a call and people went, yep, I got a bike. Boom, here you go. We have another bike collection in Budapest at the moment. We got them coming up in Lithuania, all these European places. So getting bikes is kind of easier. And then we just need the crowdfunding to get the bikes to the people who need them in Ukraine, man. So the goal in this endeavor, how many bikes or is it just more? More. I have a secret goal because, man, it sounds like a song or something like one million bikes for Ukraine, right? So that's not going to be this weekend, I can tell you, but that's my secret poetic dream is one million bikes. So $4,000 gets you 200 bikes? Yeah. Oh, don't do that math. It's going to depress me. But yeah, this is only my dream, man. Let me dream about a million bikes, all right? But hey, so let's be realistic. Maybe between now and the autumn. Maybe there's 2,000, maybe there's 5,000 bikes we can get here. If things start to ramp up and the crowdfunding starts to work and we can do everything we need to do, we just need some financial help to do it. It's that simple, really. So, And my less romantic goal is probably like 5,000 bikes this year, if I can do that. So you give them all these bikes and then there's the infrastructure side too. Are you talking to the mayor of Mikolaev about designing bike lanes? What's that side of it like? That's starting. The mayor of Mikolaev wants this badly. I've met him twice and he's totally on board. And I'm trying to get funding from the Danish government and some other organizations to start that part of the journey. But I have two people working for me who have already begun. I don't wait around for stuff. I just say, let's do it, man. And we're starting to plan Mikolaev do the urban design work that we do. So implementation of it, temporary bike lanes using the temporary bollards or rubber blocks to physically separate the bikes from the cars, as we see in other cities. That's not going to be in the spring here, but I'm thinking hopefully if we can manage to get some funding and the crowdfunding continues, there's an opportunity for doing some temporary bike lanes and starting to implement the network that we design. So that's probably later in the year that I'm looking at that because we're doing the work now. And then we got to try and figure out how to get somebody, the United Nations or the Danish government, whoever is out there to help us with that part of it. But that's totally on the cards, man. I'm looking forward to that one, seeing the physical change on the urban landscape and the bikes riding on it. That's going to be even more poetic when that happens. You mentioned getting people medication and deliveries on bikes. So who are the people doing those deliveries? Are they just citizens or is there some sort of volunteer group? So you might have heard about it when we're all out there in the world, but it's mind boggling the scale of volunteerism in this country right from the first day of the war. Every Ukrainian that I've met is crowdfunding for something like my brother's going to the front. We want to send a drone so he can do surveillance on the trenches or my brother's going that we need sleeping bags because it's getting cold. Everybody is just helping everybody else. My wine bar down the street, they have a sign on the door saying, hey, our friend's going off to war and we want to buy a car for him. So we need $6,000 to buy him a car because he can use that militarily. So all of these NGOs that are in my network, and this network's growing daily, they are just regular people who started an NGO to see if they could help in their local environment. So by and large, they have just volunteers. All the photos I get from all of the places where we give bikes to, it's just regular people on bikes with their 30 kilogram bag of potatoes for the old couple in that old house. A lot of volunteers. And in some regions, it's actually social workers who work for the region or the city. So it's a mix of the two, paid social workers and lots of volunteers. It's just this massive collective effort by the people of Ukraine to help each other and then come in and we enable them and power them with the bikes. And they just nod and off they go. And they know exactly what to do with it. So it really is a beautiful collective effort underneath these dark clouds of the war to see how people are just getting on with it, right? Doing what they can. 
you sit at a bar with somebody and you're drinking and they go, oh, hang on a sec. A friend of mine needs like 50 bucks because he's sending a drone with his brother or he's finds a sleeping bag for somebody on the front lines. And then they just, with their app, boom. Incredibly digital nation, this as well, is how they've adapted to the necessities of money transfers and everything else. So you're just a small part of a big, beautiful wheel here of volunteerism and people just helping. Wow. Thank you so much, Michael. We're going to talk to the Boise Bicycle Project now about donating bikes to Ukrainian refugees in Idaho. So uh, folks who are here and now getting bikes here. We've seen that a lot around Europe, like, you know, also in Europe, uh, you know, and, and I've heard about it in Canada and the States, you know, yeah, the refugees getting them bikes. It's a gift that keeps on giving no matter who you give it to. We are here with Devin McComas from the Boise Bicycle Project. Devin, thank you so much for joining us today. We're here to talk to you about giving bikes to Ukrainian refugees for MLK Day and what your organization is. Can you tell us a little bit about your organization and kind of what you guys did on Martin Luther King Day? Sure. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. I am the programs director at an organization called the Boise Bicycle Project. We're a bicycle co-op out of Boise, Idaho. Kind of briefly about the setup of our organization, we're a member-funded, donor-funded bike co-op. So we have a full DIY shop. You can come in and work on your bike. We're tearing apart donated bikes, so we have used parts there for everybody. And then we also have a nonprofit community outreach arm, which is kind of more my zone. And so through that, we give away bicycles to kids, teens, and adults all year round, fix bikes for free. We do some education courses. Specifically about how it came about on MLK Day, it's actually kind of a corollary to one of our founding events, which we call the Holiday Kids Bike Giveaway. So every December, we, with the help of community partners, sign up kids from around town to get a free bicycle from us that's rebuilt by volunteers. The bicycles is donated by our community, so it's really a community effort. And we just pulled off our 16th one. And so this December, we gave away approximately 650 bicycles on December 17th. How many? Say that again. 650. That is a huge number. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. So we have 581 kids sign up. All the kids with the help of referral partners, like counselors, social workers, clergy, whatever, they draw a picture of their dream bike. And we do our best really to get it as close as we can. So the building of the bikes is really the first step. And then we call it our dreamifying process. And volunteers come in if they want a Spider-Man bike. We try and make it look like a Spider-Man bike. All the stickers, streamers, laser guns, rockets, whatever you name it. The link between that and MLK Day I think the first thing to mention would be that our very first holiday kids bike giveaway when our co-founder did it was 50 plus kids, all from new arrival refugee background. So we have a long history of working with displaced people. I think we see the importance of connection between new community members and established community members. And a lot of times a bicycle can provide that. As a 30 something year old man, I'm still very excited about bicycles and I can bond with a six year old pretty quick about how excited we are about a bicycle with a coaster brake. So going into our holiday kids bike giveaway this year, we actually still worked with the displaced population, a lot of new arrival refugees. The Ukrainian Welcome Center is a really awesome nonprofit that's popped up in Nampa, which is a satellite city outside of Boise. And they're doing great work for the Ukrainians. We were having a little bit of trouble getting them grouped in with our holiday kids bike giveaway. You might imagine that they have a lot of stuff going on, that they're very busy. They're doing great work for people. They're providing all sorts of resources. They're getting people housed. They're providing education, English learning education, CDL training for job placement. They're doing awesome work out there. But getting them into our big several hundred bike push just wasn't lining up. So we decided that we were going to do it in January. For the last several years, we've used MLK Day as a day where we have volunteers in honor of the day of service for Martin Luther King. And what we do on that day is typically we have volunteers help deliver bicycles around town. So the Holiday Kids Bike Giveaway is an event where families come to us. It's really supposed to be a celebration. This year, we had people baking cookies and baked goods for the kids when they show up. There's cocoa there. The food bank has all sorts of take-home food. We had like 25 boxes of warm clothes. It was pretty cold this year. It was like 20 degrees. And so it's really kind of a celebration. It's supposed to be a party atmosphere. Our volunteers hang with the kids. And it's an event where we need people to get down here. And we do our best to coordinate rides, see if people can get down here. But no matter what, especially when you're working with an underserved population, you're just going to lose some people along the way who maybe the parents are both working. Maybe they don't have sustainable transportation. Maybe that's just not a situation where the family support or the structural issues are there where they can make it down. So on Martin Luther King Day, we get to use our incredible volunteer base and really fan out. And if there's bikes that are left over or that we're unable to get united with the kid at that event, then we can deliver them all around our valley. 
So on Martin Luther King Day, our volunteers delivered 104 bicycles to families from Boise to Caldwell, which is about a 45-minute drive from here. And part of that was that we linked up with the Ukrainian Welcome Center and brought 54 bikes out to the center. So that was a really cool day. With the help of some volunteers, we got them all set up. We delivered them out there. And then I got to kind of hang out, talk to families, talk to kids, make sure the bikes fit, see which bikes they liked, and kind of get people rolling. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. It really is. So talk about the center and the partnership with the center. And were they excited about bikes? Were they looking for a partnership with somebody who could bring bikes? Or or how did you end up picking them? Or did they pick you? Sure. Like I said, we have a pretty long track record of working with displaced people and new arrival Americans. Like I was talking about connection earlier, there's also a big element of it that as a bike commuter, I know deeply where it really does get you around. We don't always have the best public transportation. A lot of these are single car households if they have a car. So for the kids, it's important to get them to school, for the parents to work, to the grocery store. So just kind of through our work in the refugee community, I had known that the Ukrainian Welcome Center was doing incredible things and really doing it in a very DIY way. They had one employee and were all volunteer run for a long time. I really respect the work they do. They're hiring up and getting a little bit more infrastructure now, but they still do great work. So we knew about them from our work in the refugee community. They had contacted us and we were trying to go back and forth to figure out how we could get all those families served during our event. And it just worked out for the best to do it in January. Like I said earlier, for a while, they were housing families who had come to America. They were a food distribution center. It took the legal system apparently a while to catch up. So a lot of these families who came didn't have access to food support, to housing, to medical support. And they were really handling the base of the Maslow's Pyramid. Mm -hmm. So once we got connected, we got them signed up. And really, we're able to provide hopefully some connection to the community, hopefully a lifeline for some kids who are going to that center for English training or are just want to kind of experience something that they're missing from the Ukraine. A lot of those kids were forced to leave quickly mm-hmm. and left a bike behind. There are some cool stories about connecting with parents who were deeply involved in cycling, and it's been a hard adjustment for them not to have a bicycle. Mm. So to kind of make those connections and bridge that gap is really important for us. So that's amazing. So there are folks that have a deep connection already to cycling and they're here now as refugees. Yeah. And it's kind of funny that the timing works out. But yesterday in our shop, we had two parents of some kiddos come in. The kiddos, I think, both got BMX bikes and were like loving their trick bikes and rallying around the parking lot. And the parents came into our shop from Nampa and via Google Translate on a phone, we both held up the phone and spoke into it. And it roughly translates Ukrainian or Russian and back and forth to English. Mm-hmm. I learned about Eugen and his wife, Nina. They both ran a cycle tourism business in the Ukraine that they were forced to leave behind. And he was saying that it's been very difficult for him to proceed without a bike in his life. And from a place of understanding, can imagine that because my day is not really that good unless I'm riding a bike around. <laughs> so it was a really cool moment to kind of connect through the language barrier, still kind of translating with each other. He was saying that he left behind a gravel bike, a mountain bike, a single speed bike. Oh, my God. We're kind of getting them set up on what is our bread and butter, a steel frame mountain bike is really what we can give out and what's donated to us all the time. And we were talking about how he would be able to use us as a resource to build a gravel bike. That's what he would really like to do. And then the cool thing about it that came out of it, too, is that he comes into Boise three times a week for English learning and then kind of goes back out to Nampa in the afternoon. But he has some time to kill. So I think he's going to come in and start volunteering and building bikes to give away to other people. He said it's what brings him joy. He has the time he wants to help the community. And that for us is really kind of closing the circle. That is so powerful. Honestly, like this is really, I think the beauty of bikes is how for me, and it sounds like for you connect to so many other avenues of life. For me, it's about mental health. It's my way of meditating and exercising, but in times of war and chaos and losing that to come here, to come to America, Boise, it seems like the response has been very positive across the board, right? Over there. Yeah. And I think people just like you and I were saying, understand that connection, that familiarity, that gentleman loves to ride a gravel bike. And that's something I can relate to. And then it kind of goes on some of the families we work with that are from Zambia or the Congo or Syria or Afghanistan. There's still this shared understanding of what a bike can do and what watching your kid ride away on a bike does for a parent. And it's really incredible. Language barrier, total cultural difference, all withstanding, still kind of connect on that and understand what that does for somebody. Yeah, we would love to talk to this guy and get his perspective, I think would be really powerful because on the previous side of this interview, we spoke to Michael, who's in Ukraine, trying to get bikes to people in Ukraine. This is that other perspective. And then we would love to get this guy's take and get a sense of he's already here giving back 
to his community here, I think it really shows how powerful bikes are for people. It's not easy for everybody to understand. Yeah, and definitely going to be a fun ride getting them into the shop and seeing where that language breakdown gets us to. But if you know how to wrench on a bike, we have an incredible volunteer group that I'm sure will be excited to work with them. That's the reason we're all at a bike shop is we understand that. So definitely a really kind of unique, cool story that very funny timing. We had pushed this interview a little bit. It just happened yesterday. So perfect. So do you have a particular connection to Ukraine in your family or anything like that? Is this personal for you? I think that just like I was saying, we understand the power of bikes connecting displaced peoples with their community. A lot of times we'll say, we're just getting people from point A to point B, but where they need to go. So getting kids to a community center or to services or to our after school program is really important for me as a person. I think that a lot of the work we do at the bike co-op, that is my absolute favorite thing is working with people from the refugee community. At our holiday kids bike giveaway this year, we got 55 kids to come down from partnership with the International Rescue Committee. And that's sort of that broader spectrum of not necessarily Ukrainians, but of other countries. And so for me, that kind of work is personal where we're being inclusive and we're growing community with new arrivals who get to share this thing and also really hopefully open up their ability to connect with our community and to like this gentleman's doing, give back or to inspire and do good. Awesome. The other communities, the other displaced communities coming to America, have you engaged with them? Have you found similar success? Yeah, absolutely. We've had a really cool partnership with the IRC, the International Rescue Committee, for the last couple months. And going forward, we're running an after-school program for kids who are new arrival refugees. So these are kids multicultural who have been in America for anywhere from one week to eight months. And so they're coming in after school. We're working on bikes together. Those 55 kids who came down to our event in December were the kids who were there for months before fixing bikes after school every day to give away. As you might imagine, when you're setting up an event, there's 200 volunteers. We served 500 something people. It's an all day event. We're shutting down a street, taking over a parking lot, popping up all this infrastructure. It's kind of a monster to set up. And in the last week before I had reached out to our contact at the IRC and said, hey, I love working with it. I don't know if we have the bandwidth necessarily this week to host these kids and really do a program. And he said, okay, yeah, I get it. We'll see you at the event. And then still that Thursday afternoon, the kids rode down on their bikes. They fixed a BBP, came in, fixed bikes, still helped out. (laughs) It was just pretty incredible when offered a chance to help people are so willing. And I think for me, that is a really important thing to remember. And especially when you're working with people who can really use the access that the bike and also our shop brings. So that was a really powerful thing. And like I said, that community, we went and signed up people and their families in person. They're staying at a renovated hotel right now that housed 50 to 60 families that are new Americans. People speaking Pashto, Dari, people speaking Arabic, Swahili, Kenya, Rwandan. So that's a really incredible thing to see and be a part of and support. In the best of times, sometimes I would like to think that we're supporting the cool work that the Ukrainian Welcome Center is doing, that the IRC is doing, that the Idaho Office of Refugees is doing, because it really can be a big tool for those families and for those kids. And also, realistically, the kids are a gas. Riding bikes with the kids, there's a little bit of a different risk assessment. I'm trying to reel them in sometimes. But just kind of belly laughing, riding bikes around with these kids, it's a great time. So where does the financial support for this program come from? And how can Bike Talk listeners offer their support? Sure. Yeah. Our bike shop is run by membership, by donation, and by people coming into the shop and working on bikes and buying parts. So if bike shop listeners are sympathetic or curious, I would invite you to go to boisebicycleproject.org and just check out what we're doing. I'd invite you to email Devin, D-E-V-I-N, at boisebicycleproject.org, and I can answer any questions for you. We are so grateful to have a community in Boise, actually really across the nation. We have members and donors across the nation who support this work. At the giveaway this year, like I said, we had 581 enrollees. They all drew a picture of their dream bike, and we were able to get every bike sponsored from $50 to $100 is really what we price fixing a bike at and all the extra stuff and the volunteer time. If someone's interested in really seeing the work that we do and helping it out, whether it be coming and volunteering or donating, you can go to Boise Bicycle Project and check it out. For us going forward this year, we'll do another big giveaway like that in December, but we give away bikes all through the year. Last year, we actually just gave away our 10,000th bike as an organization. So we'll probably give away near a thousand this year again. We're also going to be operating an after-school program. We do a mobile fix-it program where we pop up around town once a week for eight months straight and fix bikes for free. So if anyone's interested in helping out in a volunteer capacity or donor capacity, we have really cool programming happening. And I would love to be able to talk and let people know more about it. Absolutely. Maybe you can send me or connect me with your friend who's 
is he a hire or is he volunteering or what's the deal? He's going to come in and volunteer and help us fix some kids' bikes to give away. This is a good thing for everyone so we can have him in our shop. So it'll be oh. awesome. I'm definitely happy to follow up with this information and see what we can do. Yeah, because there's like an emotional component to that. You know what I mean? This is the power of bikes, baby. <laughs> yeah, they wanted a bike that day. And so I found like a 1992 Diamondback that was running that I gave to him. But when I found out that he was a little bit more serious, I was like, you know, if this isn't totally your thing, I just want you to have something right now. And we can talk about what that specialized bike is and see how to get you closer to that. But yeah. I went outside. I was running to a meeting after we had hung out for a while and him and his wife were riding around on him and just looked so stoked to be on a bike. And it's just like, you know, hits you right there. It's hitting me right there. I'm not even seeing it. This is beautiful. Yeah, there's a bunch of cool moments. There's one kid who came into the Ukrainian Welcome Center. He just came in and immediately said trick bike. He didn't know a lot of English. Sometimes the kids are a little bit more adaptable and pick it up. And he just kept saying trick bike and beelined over the BMXs and they would not get off of them. You know, all the parents are parents since like a pair of shoes. They're trying to put their kid into the next size. But he was just attached to it for 45 minutes straight until they loaded in the car. It was just so awesome. Wow. That's so intense. All right. I'm looking forward to being a supporter. Thank you so much for being here today, Devin. Hey, thank you. I appreciate your time and all the questions. Thank you. Yeah, so those two interviews were incredible, I thought. Um, we're also hoping to interview a gentleman who is um, from Ukraine. He's an, he's a refugee actually living in Boise, and he's working as part of the Boise Bicycle Project as a mechanic, and it sounds like a very inspiring story. Um, I hope we get to talk to him soon. Great. And on another note, I want to I wanna pitch something really quick. On February 18th, the Los Angeles Chinatown Firecracker Ride is taking place. That's a Saturday. And there's a quick interview we have with Lisa Goldfarb about that. It's a, it's a weekend down in Chinatown here in Los Angeles. Saturday is the bike ride and Sunday is the run. And here's that interview. We'll have a 40 mile ride and a 20 mile ride. It starts in Central Plaza in Chinatown at eight o'clock for the 40 mile at uh, 8.20 for the 20 mile. But there's also opening ceremonies that you don't wanna miss beforehand. Go yeah. see the lion dancers, people lighting the firecrackers, the national anthem, the Boy Scouts doing the color guard. Like, don't miss that. Uh, how great. That's okay, I won't. Really I, I've actually done the uh, firecracker before, but I did it when it was a run. You were saying this is the 45th year. Is that correct? This is the 45th year. Yeah, started in 1978, wow. 1979. And how long has the bike been a part of it. The bike's been going on for 15 years now. It's the longest running bike event in LA. Is this the first year back after COVID or were you able to do it last year also? Last year we did it virtually. So oh. this is the first live event since Year of the Rap. So how do you do a bike ride virtually? You just do your own ride. <laughs> <laughs> we, just, we we um a bunch of us got together although six feet apart and we rode the route for fun. Great. What are the routes? The 20 mile route, it's pretty much up and down the LA River path. Oh, sure. So, so most of that route is going to be protected if you're worried about cars and traffic. So you're pretty much going to start in Chinatown and then make your way to the path, wind up in Griffith Park for the first rest stop. It's going to be a nice big rest stop, better than last time. Porta potties, lots of food. 40 mile goes uh, further than that. It starts with the 20 mile, goes on the river path. And then it goes through Eagle Rock and Pasadena and Glendale, Altadena, back down through El Sereno. There's three rest stops. Right. But this is a nice flat ride. It's supposed to be a fun ride. It's not a race. We've got an event for everyone. Oh, and then we have an expo when you come back. So when you come back from your ride or your run, you'll be back in uh, Central Plaza and um, there'll be a bunch of booths. There's a boba garden so you can buy uh boba tea. There's going to be a beer garden. You'll get one free beer with your registration. Some noodles for you when you come back. A little fun party. There'll be a DJ, music, dancing. How do people get more information? Go to um, firecracker10k.org. That's our website. And you can also register there. So just look up firecracker10k and you'll find us on Facebook, Instagram, Great, great. The money that is raised by the event goes back to Chinatown? It goes to several organizations, and there are mostly organizations in Chinatown having to do with the elderly, with, with uh, children, with education, with culture. So, so it's a good cause on top of everything It's else. a good cause. There is no better 
justification for spending some money to go have fun with your friends, go for right. a ride or run and drink some beer. <laughs> is, it, say, is it Chinese beer by any chance? It's for charity. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Well, I, I can't think of a better way to, to start the new year and to embrace Chinatown. Um, Lisa Goldfarb, thank you so much for coming on Bike Talk. Yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. I'll see you on the 18th. Oh, great. You're going to come? Excellent. Yeah. We'll see you there. That was Lisa Goldfarb talking with Taylor Nichols about the firecracker ride. And that was Bike Talk. Thanks to co-hosts Lindsay, Taylor, Seamus, and Galen, and Kevin Burton for editing. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Bye.